Just a taster, right? Okay, will be fine. Inhabit is a show about the power of design. Hello, Inhabit listeners. Buenos dias. Hola. This is such a treat to introduce the finale of Inhabit Summer Jam, the complete interview with Border X Brewing CEO David Favela. Can't wait. My name is Yanel D'Angel. I am an architect here at Perkins and Will and the managing director of the Boston Studio. This second Inhabit series fills me with pride. It's all about what we can learn from David Fabella about how he is building his brewery business with, alongside, and for the Chicano community of Barrio Logan. I am not a Chicana, I am a Puerto Riqueña, Boricua. And I recently became the first Latina managing director of any studio in the entire firm. When David talks about creating a space where he can be really good at being Mexican, where his neighbors and community can feel like they are cool and their culture is cool, I feel a renewed sense of purpose as an architect. Our profession makes a critical distinction between spaces and places. In recent years, we have started to have lots of conversations about whether we should be placemaking or placekeeping. As I listen to David talk about understanding, honoring, and supporting what is already there, I hear how fundamental the placekeeping intervention is. We really are not building something out of nothing. But like Eunice said, the goal is not to avoid any change. Change needs to be woven into the strengths of the existing community to honor their long-time investment in that place. In this conversation with Erica, we also hear David reclaim development's dirty work, gentrification with gentification from gente, the Spanish word for people. He breaks it down into three best practices prioritizing what is already in the neighborhood, authentic storytelling, and investment in economic opportunity for the neighborhood. These three ingredients resonate with me, particularly now that we are rebuilding communities everywhere in the wake of extreme weather events such as Hurricane Ian, but especially in my beloved Puerto Rico since Maria and now Fiona. In 2017, I launched an initiative called Resiliency, capital S-E-E, for social, environmental, and economic resilience. And we continue to be active and engaged in the communities we began to rebuild five years ago. What I love about Davis' three ingredients is that they are fundamental to doing this kind of work. Our lessons from Puerto Rico will sound very familiar. Number one, we are not starting from scratch, so we work with the physical assets the community already has. For example, transforming a decommissioned elementary school into a resilient energy center in Barrio Arenas, Guanica Municipality. This transformation is about giving an old soul new life through structural stabilization, new plumbing and electric system, and a new community kitchen. 
Number two, the community is the author of their own storytelling. We are there to augment and amplify those voices through empowerment and advocacy. When we met for the first time with community leaders in the Toa Baja municipality, they expected us to tell them what needs to be done. Instead, we said, you are the expert, you live here, give us your insights and let's co-author a solution together. It's just better when we do it together. And number three, economic opportunity is only sustainable if it is rooted in the neighborhood. We need to support community entrepreneurship. Sometimes that means high schoolers making cool t-shirts with great colors to support themselves and contribute to their community. Like David and Border X in Barrio Logan, we are succeeding in Puerto Rico, in Barrio Arenas Guanica, Toa Baja, and Umacao communities, to mention a few. Because gentrification and place-keeping work impact our culturally specific design allows authentic places to grow and sustain. Or to quote the Summer Jam tagline, design is culture and soul, alma. But as provocative as their conversation about gentrification is, Erica and David touch on so many aspects of design at the human scale. Food, feeling, history, activism. You will want to listen all the way through. Entonces, en el Jardín de la Cerveza, con David Favela. Awesome. Yeah. Sorry, there's a military base nearby, but... That's fine. It's adding the... Yeah, the ambiance. <laughs> Where are we? Yeah. Um, good to go? Yeah. Alrighty. So we're just going to get into it. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so, thank you for having us. Uh, we've known each other, what? two days yeah yeah two days yeah. two hours of those two days so we're really working hard on this friendship yeah. already and so i just want to place people for everyone who's listening where are we what's your name perfect so my name is david favela i'm the ceo of border x brewing mm. we're currently sitting in the back beer garden of border x brewing here in beautiful barrio logan it's a nice, sunny, windy day. It's uh, like the best Tuesday I've had in a long time. <laughs> That's important to realize. We've got a barrio bird flying up above us, I'm sure, chasing somebody. But uh, here in the beer garden, we have peace and tranquility. We have an unusual, unlikely combination of really a, a place that's safe and comfortable and inviting in the middle of a neighborhood that hasn't necessarily been considered that in a long, long time. So it's a very interesting kind of contrast and juxtaposition of two very different kinds of experiences. And I think that's what surprises people when they come to Barrio Logan and specifically yeah. when they come to Border X. Well, I feel like one of the things that really hit me is that you're, I mean, yes, you are the CEO. I love when, you know, a person of color is a CEO, but <laughs> beyond that, you know, you're a historian in my mind. And mm -hmm. so the other day when we walked through the neighborhood, you had this incredible understanding of Barrio Logan. Like you aren't just like someone who owns a business here, you know this legacy. Absolutely. And I was wondering if for folks who don't know Barrio Logan, like a brief history for them. Yeah, so I've, I've always wanted to understand why things are the way they are. Yes. <laughs> and history and economics are probably two of the best storytelling techniques to really understand how things come about. Yeah. And right now we're in, uh, 
were in Barrio Logan that was really subdivided in 1881. Originally it was, uh, you know, farmland and open pasture here in beautiful San Diego. And it's gone through a variety of chapters. So it had a big boom in about the 1910 when the Mexican Revolution created a wave of refugees that came across the border. And Barrio Logan was the place that they called home. Yeah. It wasn't Old Town, it wasn't downtown, yeah. it wasn't the North County because at that point it was all pasture land and farms. So yeah. this was where those families came for safety and opportunity. And since then, those families have been here. And there was really a heyday, I would say probably the 1920s and 30s, when there was, um, you know, the community was really developing. They had their own dentist, they had their own movie theater. It was really its yeah. own community. And it was really strong in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There was an emergence of social clubs, what they call jacket clubs, because they wore jackets. And they're not gangs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people make that mistake. They were truly in the words and they use it themselves social clubs and they had super interesting names. One was Los Chicanos. Okay. So we can even point back way back when the political days of the 1970s that term was already being mm -hmm. used and they would organize car washes or dances to raise money and then uh, just really enrich the fabric of the community and provide the entertainment and the culture for the community. You know, since then it's obviously fallen on hard times, probably in the 90s because yeah. of drugs and gangs and everything that happened. But what never was removed from here was the people, their families, the stories and the culture. Yeah. So when I came along <laughs> in 2014, I didn't immediately recognize it all because you could drive around this neighborhood and you didn't see the culture. You saw the graffiti, you saw the street art, yep. but you didn't understand the depth yeah. of what was going on here and the fact that some of the families in these homes have been here for over two to three generations. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I remember when I was remodeling the our first Border X over here across the street in the corner, Yeah. I was constantly being interrupted by older gentlemen and, uh, and and women who would peek in and see me in my construction clothes all <laughs> dusty and saying, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, because they're so nosy. Yeah. But what they were doing is they were vetting me. They really wanted to understand who I was, what I was about, and what I was bringing to the community yeah. because the community is very protective. And so that's really the history of Barrio Logan mm -hmm. in a nutshell is that culture established over many, many decades is still here. Mm. And as a brewery, we just really sought to create a space for the community to fill yeah. with what was already here. Right. Well, what's interesting and the way that, you know, you were talking the other day even, is that Border X is now a part of that history. It is a part of the legacy of Barrio Logan and the way that this street has even sort of developed over the last 10 years. You know, right now I'm wearing a, a shirt that says, Mujer, you are worthy. And it's literally from a shop two doors down from a young woman entrepreneur who is like, I want to start my shop here. And I think that's partially because of something like Border X. So with that in mind, in that history, there's a possibility for gentrification. And a term that you brought up, it took me a second. I was like, wait, my Spanglish is good enough. I get this, is gentification. Gentification, that's right. And so gente being people in yeah. Spanish. And so this peopleification. And as mm -hmm. like a public health scientist, I'm like, I've been doing gentrification all my life. <laughs> and I didn't have the right term. 
And so yeah. I'm curious for folks, how would you describe hempification? I think for urban planners especially, they are so fearful of gentrification in their work that they almost are paralyzed to make yeah. you know, truly radical cultural moves. Yeah, you know, uh, I've always had a deep interest in economic development. I've always, uh, you know, understood my parents, why they immigrated to the U.S., their stories and how they, you know, succeeded here in the United States. And so I, I always recognized early on the economics and the capitalist system, mm. for better or worse, is an essential part of our existence. And so I think any strategy of improving people's quality of life has to take that into consideration. And so when we came here, we still hadn't fully formed and understood what gentrification was. We just kind of had some ideas. Yeah. Um, and I think what I've distilled it down is there's basically three things that we try to get everybody on the block to practice. Mm. And the first one is very basic but profound at the same time, is that all the, all the businesses on the block are building businesses for the existing community. And it's a very simple concept. That is, we're not waiting for displacement to bring in a new higher income crowd. We are creating a business that survives based on the locals patronizing that location. Yeah. And there are a lot of things each of the individual businesses that have done um, well that have done to attract that local uh, audience. But that's been a really critical part. And so what makes me very happy is... I look around and there are tons of locals here. There are, there are people who come here to have their birthday parties. There are people who come here to have their anniversary, baby showers, just the most yeah. unusual celebrations. But, you know, we realized early on that a lot of these homes were built early on in the 1910s, 1920s, and just yeah. literally don't have room yeah. <laughs> for family get-togethers. Right. And so we've become, in a way, that, that living room for the community. And so I think, again... Yes, we serve beer. Yes, we serve food. But there is something more that we feed. And I like to, without sounding presumptuous, we feed people's souls. Yeah. Well, you fed art. my soul. <laughs> like the other day when I had this, this pepino beer that you have, and I took a sip, and luckily I was amongst professionals that I didn't start crying. Because, like, you are... That is the thing is that when we talk about culture and design, yeah. like, that is even the flavors that we get to consume. And so I think it's... It's the space, but it's also like every element of Border X is bringing back, celebrating this community. And that yes. is so powerful. It is. And, you know, I didn't realize that aspect you just talked about because I've been in high tech world and in the suburbs for 22 years working at Hewlett Packard. And I came here for an art show once. Yeah. And I remember feeling something very deep in my heart, my soul, I guess is yeah. the way of describing it, where I saw people of color doing really cool things, creating yeah. art, holding events, you know, and I was just like, wow, I never realized that there was a part of me that wasn't really being expressed or touched on anymore. Yeah. You know, as an executive at HP, I, I created a facade for myself that you have to as a professional oh, yeah. to survive and thrive in that environment. Definitely. But there was a part of me that said, yeah, but you haven't fed your soul at all, yeah. you know? And uh, I think that's what people feel when they come here and we speak their language, literally, yeah. <laughs> naming the beers <laughs> yeah. and uh, the food and the art and the events that we hold. People look at that and they see themselves. Yeah. They recognize themselves and they go, wow, it's really cool. I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, our culture is cool. And we don't get told that enough. 
I think, you know, something Eunice and I both feel really strongly is that we're blended, you know, multi-generational, multi-racial, like it is just this, we are the melting pot they always talk about, and yet there ain't a lot of room for melting. And it's, you know, to come to a place like this where you're hitting at this intersection of so many different things, that to me is the powerful piece is the world from the demographics even of this you know society is going to become more blended yeah. and the future is things like border x that is hinting at that intersection um so we got to the first piece yes of what is hentification let's bring it back to the last two so, yep so the, should we yeah i think okay. so all right let's do it so number two so number two is i feel like there's a serious lack of storytelling about our communities mm. um you know, people really don't understand Barrio Logan. I didn't understand Barrio Logan until I came here, worked here, learned, uh, you know, met people, talked about history, that I truly started understanding Barrio Logan and its unique history. But there are stories all across the United States, and the stories that tend to be told are the ones that are, are how should I say it, the more dominant stories, maybe, mm -hmm. is perhaps. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when we opened up our brewery in uh, the city of Bell, yeah. Right across our street, they've preserved the Victorian home of the original Bell Pioneer family. Oh, interesting. And you'd like to think, based on the stories being told there, that they came to this empty land and through sheer hard work and hustle created something out of nothing. Yeah. And it's like, no, actually, there were the Kumeyaay, well, and there, there's a different tribe, but there were Native Americans. Yeah. And then uh, after the Native Americans, there were Mexican ranchero families who had adobes that were preserved, yeah. that were raised to the ground and something built on top of it. But, you know, that is repeated over and over again. I mean, we looked at Escondido, which is in the North County, and I was yeah. looking at a, a place to potentially open another brewery. And it was this old uh, little corner store called Lopez Market. Okay. And it's where all the farm migrant workers okay. would cash their checks would buy their tortillas i mean i i mean yeah. going back for a long long time there was even a clandestine poker game in the back oh, room yeah. okay and uh and it's so symptomatic i think especially in urban planning that that was raised to the ground i was trying to save it and i was going to build a brewery around it and just have use yeah. that as a platform to tell the story about yeah. migrant workers in that city yeah. who frankly were the economic engine yes yeah. the ranchers owned the properties but the people who work yeah. the land no one's telling their stories right. and and in the ultimate of ironies the uh the planning group of that city had a brilliant idea they were going to redevelop that whole section and they were going to call it the Mercado District. And it was going to be celebrating the colonial romanticized past of, Mex uh, of California. And it just felt like a stab in the heart. It's like, because it's, it's being standardized in a way that's romanticized, nostalgic, and totally removed from the Latino guy who's walking down the street, right. whose parents or grandparents used to be migrant farm workers. Yeah. There's no connection between him and what they're trying to do. So... Yeah. We've been kind of, there's this chapter of just the common person, the hardworking person that's helped build this country, yeah. and they're invisible. 
Well, and I think that's so powerful because it's the power of who gets to share their history and who doesn't and whose history is erased. Like, I love this line, our history is our prologue. Like, whatever our story is, it is sort of informing where we have come to today. And if we don't actually acknowledge that, we miss a critical piece of information, evidence, details, all of that. Mm -hmm. So Well, it's so critical to forming a strong sense of self yeah. to understand who you are, where you come from, the role of your ancestors and, and whatnot. And when you don't have that, you become unmoored in a way yeah. where it's like, well, I'm just whoever I am and I'm just here and there's just, I popped in because obviously I study history in school. I walk around the city, but there is no mention of anybody or anyone that I know of. Yeah. So I think hentification, bringing it back is that, really that about... number three still. <laughs> yes. So, but the, in summary, the second one is the businesses have to tell those stories. We have an yeah. obligation. And I think when you walk up and down the street, when you have someone who can help you decode yeah. the, the, the street art, the paintings, the names, there are so many stories. I had to rush through it, but yeah. I could spend like half a day here yeah. talking about this building and that, that building. So it's, that's really, I think, an obligation of when we think about economic development, redevelopment, and urban planning, you know, don't erase it. You know, tell the stories that aren't always being told and tell it in a way that still connects to the people who ancestors were there before. So that's the second piece. Um, The third piece is really going to the heart of economic development. And there are so many different models from an urban designer perspective of, well, how do we create jobs? How do we create economic activity? And, And really the shortcut is we'll just work with franchises, just work with big box stores, just go with what's known. And I understand that. Sometimes that is the more likely to succeed, yeah, the more path of, least resistance. path of least resistance. And, you know, these are all proven concepts. They just need a physical space to occupy and yeah. they should thrive. But I think what that totally ignores is as you do that more and more, yeah. the opportunities for true grassroots entrepreneurialism actually diminish. And we were faced with that on this street. So interesting enough, you know, there's a, a gentleman here in the community named Chris Zertuche. He managed La Bodega Art Gallery. Okay. Um, he had this, and I didn't understand it at first, but I can see how it was such a critical part of how we evolved, is he actually worked with the landlords on the larger properties okay. and subdivided them. So if you had a 5,000 square foot retail location, there was no one on the street with a business model or the resources to pull that off. Yeah. But there were 10 people who could if they all took a little piece of that. And by doing that, and I think there's at least three or four buildings that are like that, where they've been activated, we call it, in a way that now these young entrepreneurs can plug in. And many of them have created thriving online business stores. You walked in, bought this yeah. beautiful shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so now we've got, you know, instead of just one large retail location, we have 10 small artisan craft, you know, cool shops. And that's added so much texture and culture and beauty to the neighborhood and personalities and, you know, people who frankly have enriched um, things for all of us. I mean, I think you'll recall when we were walking through, I waved to a young lady in a small shop. That's the, her shop is called So Loca. Okay. So Loca, crazy. <laughs> um, that sounds like Unisonized friendship. <laughs> <laughs> sounds right. And she has taken over that spot. And I very publicly credit her with the courage during the pandemic. Mm. 
just to step up and say, hey guys, you know, we got shut down in March. We kind of weren't sure what was going on. And I think in August, when we were looking at another shutdown, she said, no, we're not just gonna wither away and have this beautiful thing that's happening on the street get destroyed. And she said, we're gonna do this thing called walk the block and we're gonna put our shops out on the sidewalk and then people don't have to come inside. Everything's outside. That first weekend we did that, our sales were three times what they had been before. Wow. I mean, and there was such a great vibe on the street. People were out and about. And we all kind of needed that after yeah. the pandemic. And it's still to this day contributing tremendously. So she may have one of the smaller shops on the street, but ideas don't know the dimensions where they originate from. Yeah. And her leadership and courage are things that have benefited me, the largest business on the block. So. I, I always make sure to give her credit, but it's just a great example, I think, of something we may talk about later, yeah. which is this whole collective action, really, on behalf of large, medium, and small uh, shops here on the street that we've all helped each other in one way or another. Yeah, definitely. What I think is hitting for me is that, so I live in a very rural town, and yet this idea of breaking up the 5,000 square feet to give that empowerment to smaller business owners who have all of these ideas and creativity that becomes their platform to make change and on a scale that works for them totally. and so I just feel like although we think of this as urban planning and urban design what's funny is if we break it down into our neighborhoods if we think about the gente like it becomes a different thing where even in rural communities where they might have sort of these dying main streets the same thing is so true and you wouldn't call that maybe urban design but it is you know that happening in those places as well oh it is it so is. okay so to break it back down our three things are that we should remember for gentrification if you were to like single sentence what would it be <laughs> make products or services for the people that live in the community celebrate the history and tell the stories of the community and create economic opportunity for people in the neighborhood. A lot of these businesses are from people from the neighborhood, and I think that's really important because we're not trying to displace them as we try to evolve the neighborhood. Yep. We're trying to bring every as many of us along for the ride as possible. And so the more slots that people can plug into, and by the way, we not only do that, but here at the brewery, we hold markets and small crafts people mm. and small artists, and we don't charge a commission. And so we try to support it in all different aspects. So gentification is sort of our, our central framework for this conversation. How does this actually stimulate greater conversation? How is this just the beginning point? Because this isn't just about you. No. This is this is about the communities that you are in. It is about bringing them in and them kind of guiding you from the word go. Well, I think just like any uh, market, there's always the concept of what they call the anchor store or the anchor retail location. And in a way, we became that. And I think any essential economic redevelopment plan has to have a few big bets. Yeah. Uh, we were definitely a small bet that grew into a bigger bet. Um, I think what's crazy about that even is that we've all talked about food desert, yeah. but that idea of like having and creating places where there is joy and fun and that bringing those folks together totally. is something we sometimes take for granted because we see food as like this human right, but like why can't joy and coming together be that way? Brewery deserts are a real thing. Yeah, so one of the things we quickly realized when we first opened in Otay Mason, an industrial park, that if you drew a line 
latitude line from downtown San Diego and said there's North San Diego County and South San Diego County, you would have found nearly, what was it, 85 breweries north of downtown. You would have found one or two tiny breweries south of downtown. And what's the difference? (laughs) South of downtown is towards the border towards uh, the Mexican border, predominantly Latino community, multicultural communities. And um, there was nearly a million people there. And so they were being dramatically underserved. If you were growing up in any of those communities and you wanted to go have a brewery experience, and at that time there were hardly any downtown, and now there are, but 85 breweries north, especially North County, which is a full almost hour drive if you lived in South Bay. And we realized when we kind of tap, opened our brewery that we had tapped into this like underserved market. Like we had a line literally the first day we opened, we rolled up the door, my brother and I, and there were like 50 people waiting to come in and we had never served anybody. We had never tapped a keg since college <laughs> days. It was just really craziness. But it really, that was kind of like one of the first lessons I realized and as I reflect back on it is that there are tons of underserved communities out there where people have a lot of assumptions that either, oh, Latinos or people of color don't drink beer or craft beer, don't want comfortable, safe, fun environments where they can come with family and friends, aren't going to be willing to, you know, pay slightly higher prices than a malt liquor store, you know, on the corner. And they're all false. They're all false. We're all human. We are looking for connection and an opportunity to to enjoy each other's company. And I feel when we expanded to Los Angeles, we were absolutely opening up in a brewery desert. You could go to Google Maps and just put breweries and you could see us just like this lone and people would tell us, they'd say, thank God you opened up here because otherwise we'd be dri- driving 30 minutes and all around in order just to go to a great place. Yeah. Now I just walk down the street or, you know, I can take an Uber here or, or whatnot. Right. And I think that says a lot um, about um, how people perceive our communities and perceive people of color and lower income people too as well. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like this spatial epidemiology that's happening you know mm-hmm. where is where are food deserts where are brewery deserts with assumptions that are biased by how we're interpreting that information yeah. whereby we don't think those people need it so it's not a, really a desert but it is it is and so i'm curious you know as we think of this through a, a lens of restorative justice how do we quantify something like the success of border x in all of its locations what are those metrics of success yeah. that make it easier for someone to embrace gentrification in a real way? Yeah. Because what I hear from like a public health side is, oh, well, it's hard to you know quantify health in spaces. Energy efficiency so easy, and it's like, no, you can you can quantify health. I believe in <laughs> us. And so for here, you know, what do you think are maybe some of those metrics oh, of success yeah. that we can sort of look to and say the success of Border X is not just feeding your soul but there are these real things that you can look and start to measure and know that things are changing and maybe it's even pulling from your background in economics where it's thinking about the streets and the types of businesses how do we get that great question so i think you know i'll start with the easiest to measure because we always do gravitate towards that I, i 
grew up in Hewlett Packard, and you know, if you know the origin story of Dave and Bill, no, uh, I don't actually. <laughs> yeah, they started in a garage, okay. but they had a very profound humanistic way of approaching uh, technology businesses. They say the whole thing about Silicon Valley and the creation of that technology and a kind of a, a business environment that was more open and creative. Yeah. But he had a really uh, famous saying that kind of I took profoundly, which was our company aims to do well for the community and our country and the world, but it has to do financially well in order, in order to even right. be here to do well. Right. So to me, it's like I can talk about all kinds of things, but if yeah. I don't survive, if I yeah. don't succeed, <laughs> then this is not a sustainable model. So I think the first measure is, are you a successful business, number one? Yeah. And that's just measured in you know cold, hard numbers. Yep. Um, after that, though, I think it does touch on the more softer side and they're not quantifiable in such a way. I can tell you the one that means the most to me yeah. is I am happiest when my brewery is full of people from the community, but also from other communities. And there's this incredible blending and incongruity of different people from different walks of life. I remember on Thursday nights, we have a Latin jazz jam that, you know, uh, brings... Re retired white bankers from La Jolla, you know, okay. super wealthy. And then there's a, a motorcycle club member with tattoos all over his bald head, a yeah. six-inch knife hanging from his shoulder, <laughs> and they're both grooving to the same music and having a good time. And yeah. we've never had an issue. And it's there's a very interesting kind of tension, mm. not in a negative way, kind of like this, hey, we're this is different. Yep. It's not a nightclub, it's not a bar, it's not a, you know, we're all here because we, we just want to relax and enjoy ourselves. So we yeah. don't, you know, for being in the heart of the barrio and in what some consider a fearsome barrio, uh, we've never had, you know, nine years, hardly any issues. I mean, it hasn't been zero, but it's far below anything you'd find in even downtown San Diego, yeah. where there's a ton of restaurants. We have far less than that. Well, what's interesting, and I think it came up the other day when you were talking, there is such a respect yes. for this. And so I'm curious, as you were earning that respect, what challenges or barriers did you really have to overcome? And what were their sort of, I don't know, reservations before really accepting you into the community? <laughs> such a critical question. Like I said, Barrio Logan has been here for generations. And yeah. as part of that, they are very protective. Mm -hmm and defensive about what goes on in their community. Yeah. And they have ways of controlling what goes on in their community, everything from civil disobedience to other things. Yeah. And um, very interesting. So we didn't have a lot of money when I opened up the tap room here. And I did a lot of the work. I'm very handy. I do yeah. construction, carpentry, all kinds of stuff. And so I would be there, as I mentioned, covered in concrete dust or whatnot. Yeah. And when some of these elders would come by, and I'm talking people in their 70s and 80s, and yeah. would just randomly stop me, I'm like, oh, okay. I'd talk to them, but they were vetting me. Mm. They were, okay, who's that guy? Yeah. What's he doing? Yeah. What's his interests? <laughs> oh no, he's doing all the work. You know, yeah. he's told us about his vision, his dream about opening up this brewery, and yeah. and you know, without knowing it, if I had shown up with just bags of cash and hired a bunch of contractors and sat there in a suit just supervising people do the work, Yeah, I think it would have backfired, to be honest. Yeah. I think I might have been run out of the neighborhood, to be honest. But For I sure. think there was a certain amount of respect 
that yeah. they saw that I was there and that I came from as humble origins as anyone else and they respected that. That was really, I think, the foundation of why I was allowed yeah. to open in the neighborhood. Um, but then I think I've proven myself through my actions and what I, what I tell people and, you know, yeah. and explain to them why we come here and why we do the things that we do and, and why it matters. Because I would say that there was a tipping point where because it's such an activist community that there were a lot of people who said, no, 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 breweries are all about gentrification. You're just the shock troops of the real estate agents and soon this whole place will be transformed and we'll all be displaced. And I met with them. I yeah. said, don't throw rocks at my place. Don't spray paint. <laughs> Let's meet. Let's yeah. talk. And I think, you know, after having discussions, saying, look, and my basic point has always been the same. How many meetings did you have? Oh, my gosh. Like, how long did this go on? Because <laughs> I feel like you're, like, going through this, but I'm like, nothing happens in one good meeting. Like, No, it never. It's really about consistency yeah. and walking the walk. Because yeah. anybody can talk the talk. It's really being there. And they see that. And I think there's a tremendous amount of respect. I mean, I had meetings from, like I said, with these elders to even one day I remember coming back here and I, I, there was a few gentlemen at, the, at a table. Mm. And I had asked them to please, if they could be quiet because we were doing an interview or whatever. Yeah. And, and everyone was really awkward. And I was like, oh, shoot. Like, oh, no. Because, <laughs> yeah, three of them look very normal, you know, middle-aged Latinos yeah. dressed in normal, no visible tattoos or anything. Yeah. And there were a few others that were a little bit more gangster. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember that they were asking me questions about why did you come here? What is mm. going on? And I kind of suddenly snapped into focus that I was talking to what are called the shock callers of the neighborhood, the people okay. who control mostly everything yeah. <laughs> that goes on. And, uh, and an incredible peace came over me, no fear whatsoever, mm. which was unusual. I should yeah. have been scared because yeah. everyone else was. <laughs> but I was just upfront and honest about it. And I said, yeah. look, I think this is really important for our community. Yes, it is changing, but I think yeah. if we can control the change, if we can be part of the change, I think we all have a role to play. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and you know that uh, that was enough for them, and uh, it was really interesting. So, boy, <laughs> <laughs> that's an important stamp of approval. <laughs> My gosh, I you know something I've realized. We've been chatting for I don't know how long now, and we've talked about the macro stuff. We've talked about the community level. We've talked about you know gentrification. We've talked about relationships. We've talked about people down the street. We actually haven't talked about the beer. And, and what's so interesting about the beer, in my mind, is that's a design decision. So yes. you were yes. nominated. Did you win this James Beard Award? Semi-finalist. Semi-finalist. Which gonna, is huge. We need that dinner at some point. Yes. Um, but what I think is so special about that, that is also a design decision. Yes. Of really bringing culture into something and creating something for human consumption. Space is about human consumption and how we use it and experience it. And beer is no different. And beer just heightens our senses. And so I'm curious, you know, of some of the beers that you've been brewing here, what are they? What makes them special to you? Because I think that's what brings people in is actually the beer that they're drinking is, you know, that ratatouille moment when, you know, the little mouse feeds the, you know, crazy <clears throat> critic and all of a sudden you're like transported back. Yeah. And I think, you know, even for myself being Bengali, like, you know, that cucumber beer, 
when you have it it's just such a universal flavor and i was like i don't know my feelings i feel them (laughs) so strongly now so i'm curious you know a what was inspiration but b like what are some of the ones that you were just so proud of to know that we now have a beer of that well you know i think there were a couple things that were at play I remember being profoundly influenced by a book called Blue Ocean Strategy as a business book and it basically talked about you know how certain industries get commoditized and the existing players in that industry just try to outperform uh, each other on the exact same vectors that they already were on so for example they use the case of circuses mm. So they talked about how Ringling Brothers and Circus Vargas got into this whole big animal competition. So they're like, oh, someone's got a Siberian tiger. We're going to get three of them. (laughs) And so they just kept upping the ante and never really thinking about what it was that they were doing or providing Mm. their customers. And there was a small circus in Quebec that said, you know what, we're not going to have any animals. We're not, we're gonna it's gonna be a human-based show because animals are very expensive and dangerous and it's cruel and we're just not yeah. gonna have it. Period. Yeah. So they make very dramatic decisions. You, Eunice is Canadian. Do you yeah. know this story? <laughs> no, she doesn't. Oh, it's an education for all of us. So this little circus troupe, uh, I think they started off in a park or something, and uh, it was gymnasts and performers, and they would, yeah. and they said, look, you know, we're not gonna have animals, but we are gonna do because this is what people want is we're gonna tell stories mm. through our acts in yeah. our in our storytelling. We're gonna do it in really comfortable environments, whether it's a fancy tent or whether it's Las Vegas, yeah. um, and uh, we're just gonna create this beautiful experience for people because they're coming for entertainment. They're not coming necessarily for a Siberian tiger. Yeah. And um, that little circus is Cirque du Soleil. Oh, wow. And okay. now they're about $2 billion where most of the U.S. and global and have an installed base there in Las Vegas that's always yeah. sold out. And um, it affected me profoundly and I go, well, what does that mean to me? And from a brewery perspective, I said, I'm not going to compete with everyone else trying to make the best IPA in the world or the best lager. Been there, done that. (laughs) And everyone else is saying the same thing. Oh, my IPA is the best. So they're all great. I don't like IPAs. They're all bad. But that's just me. (laughs) So we took a very dramatic decision early on. And we said, and the other piece of it was, we were sitting around the table looking at each other, drinking uh, Irish Reds and Scottish mm. Stouts and this and that. And we're yeah. like, what the hell are we doing? Yeah. This is like, we don't know anything. We're not, we weren't raised in that cultural context. We don't have any ratatouille moments yeah. of experiencing <laughs> these beers. Are they yeah. good? Can I learn to like them? Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah. they're not connecting in a meaningful way yeah. to who we were. And I remember we made a very uh, profound decision this is right when we opened, right mm. before we opened. And my nephew walked away and we said, look, we're going to make Mexican-inspired craft beer because we're Mexican and at least mm-hmm. we can be good at that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> and so, but we still, that was strategic. It wasn't tactical. It's like, okay, so what does that mean? And so I credit <laughs> challenge my... Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. So my nephew went off and came, we met back up in about three weeks and he brought this little keg and... He started serving us in the meeting, and yeah. it was this beautiful ruby red beer oh. with almost, it was so red that the foam was like pink, oh, you know? Wow. And I'm mm. like, I've never seen a beer like that. He's not saying anything, and we're drinking it. Yeah. And the hibiscus and the tanginess, oh. and we're like, this is agua de Jamaica, which yeah. is a very traditional Mexican drink. And I'm like, this is us. Oh this is God. us. And it's a saison. Yeah, and which it's is a, a lovely like farmhouse brew, and yeah, totally. like all of that, it's just like. Mm. 
And that beer, <laughs> that faithful beer was the decision and became our top seller for like the first two to three years. Wow. And then we built on it by adding horchata golden stout, the pepino, which you enjoyed yeah. so much, abuelita's chocolate. Mm. But, you know, so that's how we arrived at kind of making that strategic decision. I think, yeah. though, once we started pouring the beer and allowing our customers to experience it, I realized something very profound mm. that, again, organic, not consciously choosing it. Yeah. But in a way, we tend to be, as a minority person of color, uh, there's a term called a colonialist mind or colonialist mindset, mm. where we are told what is good. Yeah. Well, what's the best cuisine in the world? French, of yeah. course. Yeah. No debate. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this whole series of ideas and concepts of, of where we think of in terms of excellence and best in class. Yeah. And I think when we decided to focus on our own culture and tell the story of our flavors and our experiences, yeah. and we put it on the same pedestal as all these other cultures out there, yep. in a way we were decolonializing our minds and saying we matter, our taste buds matter, our traditions and culture matter, yeah. and, um, and we think other people might enjoy it too. And I think it's had this really profound experience when our customers come in and they're like, I grew up drinking Abuelita's chocolate or, oh, yeah. my God, I can't believe this horchata is so good. Or, yeah. And we're having those ratatouille moments because we're connecting um, nostalgically but also kind of spiritually with, uh, again, the same theme. You are cool. The things you grew up with are cool. No matter what your socioeconomic standpoint, we're celebrating the humble. We're celebrating the everyday. And I think we don't do that enough. And I think as people, yeah. it stunts our personal growth when yeah. we can't celebrate ourselves or our families or those things that make us uniquely who we are. I think what's so powerful about that is that is what this whole, so we were at the National Planning Conference here in San Diego and everyone's talking about inclusion and everyone's talking about accessibility, but what you were talking about that is at a radical personal level. That is yeah. like what we are trying to aspire to yeah. and it is being missed. And yet I think one thing, as a, a person of color, as a woman in the sciences, it takes so much courage to put yourself, your full self on that pedestal and say, I am as worthy as the others that are yeah. beside me. And I'm wondering, like, from your own wisdom as an executive, as a construction worker covered in <laughs> dust out here, as the one leading some of these community discussions with some interesting people, um, what would be sort of your words of advice for those people to give them courage to be able to say, I'm going to be my authentic self? Because to me, I think design is only strengthened when everyone brings their authentic self. Yeah. And I think we've all quietly live in that colonial mindset and are starting to unlearn it. But it takes courage to even embrace it. Well, I think sometimes if I were to outline a map and by no means am I a model to follow because it took me like 53 years to figure it out. <laughs> but if you are, want, <laughs> get there. But if you want the shortcuts, I think really understanding yourself and why you hold certain things. Like, where do you get your ideas from? Like yeah. your beliefs of what's good, what's bad. Uh, of what's cool, what's not, is really questioning where that's coming from. Because I know growing up, like we I would reflect on, well, we were lower income, my dad was a gardener, my mom was a housewife, we didn't have much. And there was a shame almost. I, yeah. I still remember middle school, 
um, my dad would drive this old landscaping truck, you know, mm. a Chev green Chevrolet. And I would almost ask him to drop me off a block before so he wouldn't drop me off right in front of the school because it was shameful. Yeah. And somehow, and I'm not sure how we can pierce that veil of falseness, mm. that, you know, there's no shame in that. And, to, and there are people who accomplish this naturally. I don't know how they have this natural sense of confidence and pride in who they are and what they're about. And I think for the majority of us, though, it takes a little bit of time to pierce that and really kind of be comfortable in your own skin and be comfortable where you come from and yeah. who you are and what you're about and really understand, you know, are you simply adopting other people's perspectives and, and you know, applying them to yourself or are you truly yourself? And um, What I think is interesting, though, and I'm like, I agree. I'm also not letting you off the hook, which is <laughs> the fact that, you know, to me, I think that's it's true. But like for the woman who I bought the t-shirt from down the street, you are a critical reinforcement for her to have that courage. Oh. And so in my mind, like what are those reinforcements? Because I would say, based on my understanding of the field of design, architecture, urban planning, all that, it's still a white male leadership. Yeah. And yet tides are changing, but where, where do we provide reinforcements? in that courage and making that feel welcomed and included and accessible in the way that you were talking about it. Actually, you, you raise an absolute phenomenal point, which is the power of inspiration. And, you know, I I may have influenced some people positively, hopefully on this block and beyond. I mean, I'm on this block and I feel <laughs> very inspired, so. But I'll tell you, my inspiration came from the artists. And uh, I remember very, like I was mentioning to you, I was, I'd been in high tech 22 years. I'd been doing this thing and I still felt kind of hollow inside though in a way because I could never express anything about who I was or where I was from. I had to almost have this facade to succeed. Yeah. And you just got better and better at putting on this imposter. I mean, it's code switching, code switching and yeah. just like this, this very strange thing. And sometimes you have to focus so much on it that exhausting. it's exhausting <laughs> and it just overtakes you. Yeah. And I remember going to this art show and I think artists are uniquely positioned to do this is I saw young uh, Latinos, people of color creating really cool artwork. I saw that they were expressing it in their clothing. Like they were fully comfortable. Yeah. They may not be economic successes, but they were fully comfortable and confident in who they were and what they were about. And there was just this sense of like, yeah, we're Latino and it's cool. And yeah. uh, look at what the artwork we're creating. Isn't that cool? And look, we're also creating music. Isn't that cool? And, yeah. and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, you guys are creators, you know? And um, I think I was inspired by that. And I tell people that, you know, there was this place here in Barrio Logan called the Roots Factory. Mm. And they would like take random empty buildings. They would not, I don't know if they leased them, but they were, there were a lot of random empty buildings, okay. but they would have concerts, art shows. It was kind of like this whole underground scene. Yeah. And I remember how much that filled me with pride, with inspiration, with like, wow, this is really awesome. More people need to, to experience what I just went through. Yeah. You know, because I think that changed me profoundly yeah and i mean i left the corporate job a few years after that initial <laughs> experience and decided to double down here at the brewery so uh i think you're right i think we find inspiration from a variety of sources to me though the ones that inspire me the most are the ones who are taking their experiences 
and transforming them into something beautiful. Yeah. And uh, especially Chicano artists, I really enjoy because they create artwork that really for me that I understand there you know and I imagine for you as well as there's cultural symbols and backgrounds and stories and you're like oh I see that in that art piece but no one else does yep. it's like a secret decoder ring we have this yeah. bicultural <laughs> background that yeah. some people may see one thing and you're like oh wow that's so profound you know and yeah. you're, it's so wild but that was actually my initial inspiration to really think more deeply about Border X I mean we had already been making Mexican-inspired craft beer, but we really lacked that second layer of yeah. creativity and culture and, and all of that. So for people who are listening, we're in this beautiful outdoor space. We're under these lovely sort of shade protectors, um, but there is art all around us, you yes. know, and who are these artists that are sort of decorating the walls as soon as you walk out back here? They're all local artists. You know, and it's like I told you earlier, we created an empty space and people filled it with culture and beauty. Yeah. And um, that was hopefully my business model everywhere I went, but I'm finding that different communities have different levels <laughs> of, you know, expertise in that area. Barrio Logan is blessed with an incredible community of artists and musicians. Most of the musicians that play here are from the neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, yeah, and our tap room is filled I mean, the tables are painted, the walls, we have rotating art shows. It's yeah. just, you walk into an experience. And I think that's what has made us such a success is, I think people come in here and they're like, wait a second, this isn't a taco shop. This isn't a brewery. <laughs> this is like a whole different thing. Yeah. Well, I think what's funny is, as you're sort of talking about bringing this beauty to the brewery, mm -hmm. there's something about it where it's a little bit edgy. It is cool. It yeah. is all these things. And so even the like, pure definition of what beauty is is in the eye of the beholder it yes. is the chameleons among us it is about sort of being blended and just like seeing these beautiful things yeah. that are so beautiful to you yeah. and you don't actually need anyone else to see it you just need yeah. to and i think that's hitting home for barrio logan residents who are coming and all of us who aren't from here yeah. wanting to be a part of it with you yeah so no and i think and this is going a little bit profound yeah and hopefully I won't, uh, it's not thin ice, but I think, you know, being a person of color, that in a certain way we're traumatized. You know, I, I know I've had my experiences growing up yeah. where I suddenly was reminded I'm not, I'm different. And even though I felt like I was just American, yeah. I, I knew that it wasn't always the case. Yeah. And when you come into a place, like you said, that one, the beers are award-winning, recognized James Beard Award. It's like, it's excellence. It's and excellence. you're like, that's, that's me too, that's my yeah. culture. And then when we put artwork, which is also excellence, they're like, oh yeah, that's, they're talking about me, this is my culture. Mm -hmm. and then you hear the sound of the music in Spanish, because we try to play local music in and, and Spanish, and oh, that's so freaking cool. And, <laughs> and in a way, it's, it, it's healing. It's, oh, it's really healing. healing. So you were talking earlier, like, what's the secret to kind of become more self-aware, more fully yourself? And courageous, yeah. And courageous is like being inspired by the way others dress, the way others act, the, the way the artists make their artwork, the musicians make the, And they're in that same process of yeah. becoming fully themselves through their art and their music yeah. and our beer. Mm. And I think it just kind of, I think it is inspiring. Well, and I think as I like walk away from this conversation, 
this isn't a story of oppression. It isn't the story of health disparities. Yeah. It is of excellence. Yes. And I think we have to, again, designers, planners, all of this, we have to flip the script. Yeah. It has to be about elevating excellence. And I just, that is something we have gotten, you know, we will teach history and it will be about slavery, but not about black excellence. You yes. know, we'll talk about sort of encampments and it's not about sort of Asian Americans who are killing it. Like to me, there's just so many opportunities for us to flip the script. And I do think Border X is a part of flipping that script. It is about excellence. And so is there anything else you want to share? If there was one thing I'd love to, to talk about, let me just organize my thoughts around it um you know it seems like I, i'm really trying to understand what i want to do in my next phase of my life and really trying to take these experiences and transform them into something beneficial yeah. and it's kind of like i almost have to go back and state the pr root problem which was i think that in order for a country to be successful for a community to be successful for individuals to be successful it's defined by how many opportunities collectively we create yeah. to allow people to grow. Yeah. So the problem statement is, you know, are we providing those opportunities for people from low income, from underserved communities to be able to help themselves? Yeah. And I think there's an educational path, there's a vocational path, and there's an entrepreneurial path. And obviously people can choose to be priests and other things, yeah. but we'll focus on the, the first three, and especially the last one, the, the one entrepreneurial path, mm. is what are we as a society yeah. choosing to provide these communities as far as an escalator, a path upwards? And it's a messy science, if you will, because mm. we're, we, we as humans are so messy. We have our traumas, we have our issues, we have all kinds of stuff. And so even as I think well-meaning agencies, an SBA or a nonprofit, try to develop the, the capital, the human capital of these communities, it's hard. It's hard because I think you have to combine a variety of hard and soft skills. It's self-improvement, it's uh, confidence, it's inspiration. And I think Barrio Logan, if anything, kind of provide this really unique combination of things mm -hmm. that, you know, the question I want to focus on moving forward is, what were they? Are they replicable? Can we scale these to other communities uh, across the nation? Because I think you know, as you look at the age demographics and racial demographics across the United States, there's a huge population wave of Latinos and other ethnic groups coming up. And, and the thing is, if we're not developing that human capital, we as a country will be worse off. Shouldn't be seen as charity. Shouldn't be seen as just, oh, this is a nice thing to do. This is an essential thing to do if we want to provide the kind of quality of life and economic development as a nation yeah. and not create dead zones where all these young, capable people are being wasted. Well, what I loved the other day, you said, you know, this is Chicano 2.0. Yes. It's happening. And I wonder if you can, like, explain what Chicano 2.0 is, because I think it's powerful. Yeah, so you know, in the 1970s, there was a political movement called, you know, Chicano. But again, the term goes way, way back when. I mean, back in the 1920s, 30s, there were clubs, jacket clubs. And so, you know, I, I, no one knows exactly where the term came from. But at least when it came in the 1970s, 
And there are a variety of definitions. Being Chicano means you are of Latino, in some cases Mexican uh, descent, but most importantly that you're politically and culturally aware of your position within society and the things that have either come to help you or harm you. And one of, the, one of the goals of the Chicano movement was to gain political representation, to have a voice. And they did. They did marches, they did protests, they demanded justice, and things like affirmative action and equal opportunity, and all these things came out of that movement and political representation. So now if you look at cities across Southern California, you're seeing city councils that are made up of Latinos, mayors, case of Los Angeles. And so... In a way, you can say, check, this movement has achieved many of its objectives. There's one objective, though, which was never addressed, and it's the economic development platform component. It still references the original uh, Chicano movement plan. I forgot the exact title. I want to say Plan de Ayala, but I think that's actually a treaty or something else. (laughs) But um, it still speaks to agrarian reform as the economic platform of the Chicano movement. And I don't know about you, I love gardening, yeah. but I don't want to make a living with gardening. Yeah. Uh, it's a very hard thing to do, and I don't think we as a community understand that econ- you know political representation is good. Mm-hmm. EOP, affirmative action, which, by the way, I'm a child of. I mean, I was a complete loser in high school, and there's no reason <laughs> I should have went to college, but luckily I proved myself I once I did. <laughs> and... Um, And I think that there has to be in this Chicano 2.0 a conversation, which I'm thinking about sponsoring, but I'm hesitant, Mm. around what does this really mean? And I remember it quite distinctly because one of the impetus for that is I came to the barrio originally out of Hewlett Packard wearing a sports jacket as I would, being from HP and a good executive. and, And there was a sense that you couldn't be Chicano and be that like I was. And I was like, wait a second, I am a child of the Chicano movement. How can I not be Chicano? And I think we need to have a conversation around what that means and what do we need to demand and build for our communities so that we can economically move forward, not politically, not just through the educational path, but through this entrepreneurial path. And I think Barrio Logan is a great example of something I would call almost Chicano 2.0. And the hesitancy is I know it's going to unleash a firestorm of using that term and then putting 2.0 behind it. Mm-hmm. But a part of me is like, good, yeah, good. Let's have that conversation because we're not having it today. It's static. It hasn't changed in 50 years. And we're still talking about agrarian reform. <laughs> like, okay, now what do we want to tackle? I got ideas. Oh, man. Is it being recorded there? Or where yeah. David Favela is the CEO of Border X Brewing and the director of the federal Build to Scale initiative at the University of California, San Diego. He is a first-generation American of Mexican ancestry who created a brewery and an art space attuned to the culture and people who have lived in Barrio Logan for generations. And that's it for In the Beer Garden with David Favela and Inhabit Summer Jam. You can hear all three episodes as well as the pilot series on our website or wherever you get your podcast. 
If you like what you are hearing, write us a review on Apple or send us a voice memo at inhabit.podcast at perkinswheel.com. We want to know what you think design is. I am Janelle De Angel, and I think design is inclusive co-authorship. El diseño es coautoría inclusiva. Okay, I have an important question, though. Is there any chance we can have a little cappino beer? Of course, are you okay, kidding this me? Is, this is, you know, our last day here, and I just feel like it's important. I got you guys. Inhabit is a production of Perkins and Will. I'm Erica Etland. And I'm Eunice Wong. Check out our show page at inhabit.perkinswill.com for the show notes, music, and links to all of the resources and references we mentioned. Follow us on Instagram at perkinswill. The Scrappy team is led by Dr. Lauren Neef, our executive producer, who also edits the show. Shout out to Julio Brenes for the illustrations you see on our website, Music by Epidemic Sound. A special thank you to David Favela for inviting us with open arms to Border X Brewing and sharing his inspiring story with all of us. We're so grateful for your time. And thanks to our advisory board for being straight with us once again. Casey Jones, Paul Kulig, Yehia Madkor, Angela Miller, Rachel Rose, Kimberly Siegel, and Gotham Sundaram. The moment. The moment. Oh, cheers. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, what do we have here? So I just brought out. Oh, this this is our special Selena edition uh, Border X Crowler Beautiful. with the Pino Sour. <gasps> so, very oh, limited edition. Oh, All right, goodness. one for each of you. <laughs> That's the best day of my life. Best day. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> and this will like this will sit with us and we will marinate in this day for a while. Good. So well, it's, I think uh, very timely for all of us. Yeah. yeah. It's time to I think all of us to recharge our mojo. Yeah. <laughs> Are you excited?